don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 43. And today we are talking about uh, Red Desert or El Deserto Rosso by Michelangelo or directed by Michelangelo Antonioni from 1964 um and i have to say i'm not a huge i'm not hugely familiar with you know italian neo-realist you know mid 20th century directors but i feel like this is a pretty good kind of introduction maybe or for me at least um because apparently this is his first film in color which is kind of amazing given how kind of masterfully color is used in the whole thing and the cinematography yeah, it's, like, it's it's like he only like he decided to make it color because he had cool ideas you know to use uh cool ways in which to use color yeah it's almost like, almost like a, a smarter version of the wizard of oz where it's like oh let's make this first color film you know let's let's make the idea of color important to the story yeah or like a like reverse schindler's list or something like that um <laughs> yeah and the cinematography is about carlo de palma who i only mentioned because he was a big deal he did some other films by antonioni including uh, uh blow up and had, did a lot of a uh, can't talk a lot of woody allen's movies uh which you know think whatever you want about him now but those films that he made at the time were considered kind of masterfully made and oh, sure do you know which ones he did um, I, I suspect it's like the sort of bleaker kind of Scandinavian toned, yeah. uh, which, which are the best Woody yeah. Allen movies it, interiors, it, I think is his masterpiece. I'll tell you in a second, but just to clarify what I just said, said, think what you want about him. I think Woody Allen's like creepy old skeevy dude, uh, oh, but, yeah. but also a talented director in, in some way. I think he's kind of overrated. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I think he's a lot of things, or I think his movies are a lot of different things, and it's kind of, it's weird to even try to like rank them all on the same, you know, against the same criteria. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, look at Midnight in Paris; is just a total fuck around movie, mm-hmm. and then something like Interiors and uh, um, what's another like serious one well, that here, he did? I'll, I'll tell uh, you, like I'll, Hannah and her sisters or something like yeah. that is, um, you know, it's, it's just a very different things. So I'll tell you, there's a whole list of the Woody Allen movies that De Palma worked, worked on Hannah oh, and her cool. sisters, uh, radio days, September, Alice, shadows and fog, husbands, September. And wives. That's a, that's a good one that, uh, you don't hear a lot about anymore. Yeah. Um, so husbands and wives, Manhattan murder mystery, bullets over Broadway, don't drink the water, mighty Aphrodite. Everyone says I love you and deconstructing Harry. Hmm. Hannah and her sister is probably my favorite from that list. Mm-hmm. So the the pedigree on this movie is, you know, out of sight. There, there's a lot of good stuff happening in it. Um. And like I said, I, I'm not super familiar familiar with Italian films. I've seen, you know, a couple of of uh, Fellini's films, um, but that's about it. So yeah, I can't think. I can't think of another 
Italian director whose whose movies I know. Yeah, because like I mentioned at the end of the last episode, I'm I'm kind of a philistine. <laughs> like I've seen a lot of films and a lot of like great you know classic films, but my knowledge is not as wide as I would like it to be. Yeah, like I said, and I think I mentioned last time too. It's uh, I used to be more into like the film nerd kind of thing, especially like when I was in undergrad. That's sort of what I did, and then I just kind of got away from it a little bit, and it it, it felt um, you know, there's a way you can get into anything in a kind of trivial way where it it an interest can sort of cease to point to the real world and it just becomes for itself. And, uh, I kind of felt like that's how it was going. Like I was just like memorizing a bunch of random bullshit about, uh, you know, about directors and and things like that. And I just kind of lost interest in that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I started a movie podcast. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah that's when we put it um so i don't know if you saw this it's kind of related to this and then we can start actually talking about the movie but parasite won like best foreign film or something at the golden globes oh cool no um, i did not see that i i guess it would it would have had to have been best foreign film but it won and and in his acceptance speech bong joon ho uh said something like once you get over that uh you know two inch tall wall of uh of uh captions um (laughs) then then you will unlock a whole new world of films that you can explore captions isn't the right word subtitles there we go subtitles yeah um he said once you get over that sort of barrier subtitles and you sort of open up you know these whole new cinematic worlds which is absolutely true and we kind of learned with uh embrace of the serpent which is you know an, an awesome trippy movie um, but because it's in Spanish, a lot of people will kind of be turned off by that. And then, you know, with these Italian directors, you have, you know, these like mammoth names and in film, but you have to be willing to, you know, read who wants to do that. That's why I'm watching a movie in the first place. Right. Right. Well, that, that is something that, uh, any time studying film academically will, will cure you of very quickly because, uh, a lot of times professors have a a real sort of skewed uh, you know bias towards uh, European film uh, and 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 for good reason I, I have noticed I was just reading a review or, or something about the movie Wonder Boys which I love uh, I can't remember why I was reading about it but uh, the reviewer mentioned how it has a sort of european vibe to it and i and i've noticed how i've noticed how a lot of the movies i love i like people say that about it's like oh it's kind of a european vibe what that means is like shit doesn't blow up in it Um, (laughs) there are people talking about things (laughs) right Uh, uh, which is kind of like we're going to talk about our uh our best of the podcast, best films we've covered so far lists later on feared. We'll do that kind of like after we talk about the movie. Um, but that's why something like there will be blood, uh, is so great because it kind of combines, you know, it's kind of like 
an American film in a European sort of style, but it also has like that one of the pivotal scenes is an explosion, but it's it's very like tastefully done and narratively perfect. Right. It's it's yeah, the explosion is like integral to to the plot, to the meaning of the movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like like a really well written porn where, where the explosion <laughs> matters. <laughs> and uh, on that note, we'll transition into uh, one of the masters of film, <laughs> Antonioni. So, uh, what did you think of this film? Or actually, a better question, I think would be what were your sort of expectations going into it? Because I think mine were kind of off base, but ended up being kind of uh, pushed back against in a good way by the movie. Well, uh, so my expectations going in were kind of vague. Um, I think I expected because all I'd read was the description on the criterion app, which says that here's a sort of story of psychological deterioration backdropped by the sort of industrial pollution, you know, artificial setting. And it seems like that's a little bit, um, that's underselling the importance of the, environment a little bit like i don't think there's much backdrop to it at all in in a lot of shots like that's the focus like some there's some shots without people and it's just these you know this uh petrochemical plant um i because i knew it was made in 1964 i thought it would be i thought the kind of environmental critique would be a little more uh, implicit. I thought we were going to have to look a little bit harder for it because, and this is something I wrote down that we need to talk about a lot of, um, environmentally conscious people kind of today still kind of date the critique of industrial pollution to the 1970s, you know, revolution in environmental thinking. But, that's not even close to true. Like, first of all, here you go, 1964. Here's this obvious critique of, you know, in destructive industry. Uh, I think we've talked about on this podcast before, as far back as Life in the Iron Mills, Rebecca Harding Davis's novella or short story, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that is just all about this, like, uh, the detrimental effects of industrial capitalism, specifically pollution. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure quite how, uh, the idea of like the critique of industrial pollution, uh, as, as beginning with the 1970s environmental movement, I'm not sure how that idea keeps getting perpetuated, uh, because this is the critique of industrial pollution has been around as long as industry has been around. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised in, to see a film in 1964 or made in 1964. So, uh, what seemed to me unequivocally, you know, unambiguously, I should say, drawing your attention to this 
uh, as she says at the very end of the film, poison being pumped into the air. Um, it, it was, I watched it one and a half times because I watched it maybe three or four days ago and I, it just lends itself to a second viewing because there's, it's not real on the nose in terms of like, um, the dialogue, you know, there's some, some ambiguity in the dialogue, but not, not in the, the miss on scene. Um, so in terms of expectations, it exceeded expectations in terms of its relevance to the podcast. I did not find it particularly like riveting or, you know, uh, it was very European, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually like, I was very tired when I was watching it and I was kind of like nodding off during parts. And that's not to say that the, it's the movie was boring. It's just it, when a movie is kind of slow and methodical like that, you really need to like give it your attention. And in trying to do that, I was like, oh, I'm so sleepy. <laughs> so it, it took me like once I woke up, I was like, OK, yeah, I need to I need to sit up and pay attention now. Um, but, yeah, my expectations, kind of like you were saying, were sort of shaped by those uh, the description, right, of, you know, this woman having this trouble in this industrial kind of backdrop. Um, I didn't expect the movie to be kind of so incredibly figurative in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a lot of ways, like the, the images are the message that the movie's trying to get across. Yeah. It's just like, this is a metaphor. <laughs> and I think we, we've talked about how in a lot, you know, most stories that, you know, that use a metaphor, like the metaphor has to make sense for the kind of surface level reality of the film and, and also make sense on a, on a, uh, um, I don't want to say a metaphorical plane, but in, in whatever arena that the metaphor is commenting on, it has to make sense in that as well. And this one, it's just sort of like, this is a metaphor deal with it. It makes not a ton of sense in, in normal reality. Yeah. Like when she's like, when she drives, she almost drives her car off the ferry Mm -hmm. it's just like not um like realism doesn't seem to be the goal there yeah um so you know the plot is sort of i don't know i hesitate to say it's secondary but it's kind of it's almost like disseminated and this whole idea of alienation like is clearly obviously meant to extend beyond juliana giuliani Julie, what? Ju- fuck, what was her name? Julia? Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, Rudy, Rudy Giuliani. Um, Giuliana, okay, yeah. Um, it, it's meant to extend beyond her and, and sort of out into kind of everyone living within industrialized society. Um, so she kind of ends up being sort of a stand-in for everyone that's kind of too sensitive to live in such times or something like that. Yeah, there's a. Did you read that uh, article I sent you? That's on Criterion. I I kind of took a, a quick look at it, but I didn't read through it in, in there's its entirety. There's a pretty good quote. Um. Yeah, he says uh, in Antonioni's thinking, 
well, let me go back just a second here. Well, now, in Antonioni's thinking, it would have to be a woman. When spiritual imbalance was at issue, the director believed women were the subtlest barometers and also potentially its most tragic victims. Yeah, because, again, in my like very brief research into Antonioni for this, it mentioned that he, in almost all of his films, I think, or m- most of them, I want to say, he uses a, a female protagonist, um, which is interesting. But the, the way you're talking about him using it or using um, this actress whose name I can't remember. Monica uh, Vitti. Yeah, Mon- Monica Vitti, who was in a, a few of his films, um, using her as this kind of like using a woman because, as you said, she's especially vulnerable to you know, not being emotionally fragile, but to, you know, a lot of different things, um, including this kind of, there's a lot of stuff going on in the film with like sexuality and sort of like desire and just like open horniness. Uh, that's, that's a well, little, I think, I think, I think too, with, with his kind of what the article's getting at with his use of a, of a uh, woman as a lead role. I think a lot of directors who are working on, like we said, this metaphorical level, or you might even say like an archetypal level, they use women to represent the feminine, not necessarily, you know, um, women um, as like a sex Um, but, but I think what he's talking about there when he, when he says they're, they're the, uh, he uses a woman as a sort of barometer, a spiritual barometer. It's in a way it's sort of to measure what sort of foothold the feminine has in a culture, especially in a culture, as we see in red desert, very just completely dominated by um, sort of science and technology and industry, which are associated, you know, psychologically with the masculine, which again does not necessarily mean men. It's just these sort of archetypal principles of the feminine and the masculine. Um, and you see what's happening to the feminine in this movie is that it's, it's, uh, losing its, losing its mind, losing its uh, agency and ability to act because it is kind of smothered in this uh, masculine world. Yeah. And it's kind of a, with what you're talking about, it makes me think of mother because I think uh, the reason so many people had kind of a thick barrier of entry into that film is because. That's a nice way to put that. (laughs) It's because if you, uh, if you read that film as Jennifer Lawrence being representative of women and the feminine kind of only, then, you know, there's a lot of problematic things happening and it's, it sort of leaves you asking, what is the point of all this? But it's once you start to read it as kind of a, almost like a fable or like a parable that it, it you start to get these deeper meanings and you start to see beyond just, you know, abuse of a, wife by her husband or whatever it is um so thinking about yeah, it that and, way i think is yeah, more productive yeah that movie especially 
casts. I mean, I remember we talked about on the podcast, we talked about how there's no uh, devil figure in the allegory of that movie yeah. because there doesn't have to be because God, Javier Bardem's character, is the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see, um, you know, he is the he is he is God, the father in the film and the people following this God, the father are the ones tearing the house apart. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's definitely, I think a critique of, of the, uh, dominance of a sort of masculine ideal inherent in an ideology that worships God, the father, you know, the, uh, the, the patriarchy, um, yeah. to put it, simply yeah and if you look at for instance juliana's uh husband in this film who's he's you know sort of detached from her he can't comprehend what she's going through he's you know the the foreman or something of this factory some sort of high up position and uh you can see their son being kind of brought in and indoctrinated into the same way of thinking with all these like technological toys that were like weirdly advanced for the sixties. I felt like, but he had yeah, you know, the, the that robot, robot, the creepy ass robot that's like rolling back and forth. That looks like he made it out of like connects or something. Yeah. It remind uh, there were a few things that sort of reminded me of Wally <laughs> in this movie. And that robot obviously is one of them. Yeah. And then the, the um, gyroscope top thing that they have that he's explaining to the kid how it works and all that. Um, you know, but at the same time, he's completely sort of disconnected from Juliana and what she's going through as she feels, you know, as if she's disconnected from everyone. Even when you have uh, uh, Zeller, I can't remember the first name, uh, Corrado, Richard Harris's character. How uh, weird is it that Richard Harris is in this movie? And, and was was he speaking English and then they were overdubbing it? Is that what yes. was going on? Okay. Cause at first I was like, is something wrong with this app? And then I was like, no, I think that's how they filmed it. Yeah. Um, it, it reminds me of like Leonardo DiCaprio's character in uh, once upon a time when he's making the Italian movies, um, <laughs> except, you know, way, way different scenario. Um, Fucking Rick Dalton. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was uh, so, you know, his, his character feels as if he has this. And I guess, you know, she, she kind of feels this kind of connection too. But whereas she's like, you know, she is interested in him because he seems to actually notice her and sort of care about this thing she's going through. Uh, it kind of ends up with him being like, OK, now let's do it. And uh, yeah. it's kind of off putting uh, in a major way to her at that point, because she thought they had this sort of more spiritual or uh, kind of understanding of one another. Yeah. Uh, sex is used pretty interestingly in this movie yeah. i i think we will eventually have to talk about this you know the scene in like the little <laughs> the shack or whatever the little is. shack where they're the and it's like shack. the re- red room that's just a bed and there's like six people in there and you could you could slice the sexual tension with a knife um and yet nothing happens uh, i think like on the dvd it's the the scene is called blue balls in the red room. Um, <laughs> that'd be awesome if that was true. Um, but something I noticed, um, 
in that scene, if we would just want to go ahead and talk about it, is you get this real sense of repression, you know, going speaking of sex, that they all kind of just want to have this orgy. Um, and but they won't. And of course, I think Antonioni is using that again on a on a more metaphorical level. He's probably talking about eros as opposed to like fucking. Um, <laughs> but I'll just, just imagine like <laughs> I don't know. He's like, like oh, some, I want to make a movie about fucking. Yes, nothing like Herbert Marcuse. Who's like Eros as opposed to fucking? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like the subtitle of one of his books or something. One Dimensional Man. As Freud lined out, <laughs> Eros versus the fuck force. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think in that scene you see a lot of repressed Eros, and uh, and you see once they sort of climb out of the of the red room not not long after they start just like tearing shit apart you know they're just like yeah punching holes in the wall and burning the wood and it and it really made me think about like it, it seemed like a commentary on environmental destruction it's like it's like this erotic energy has been repressed and then is sublimated through these destructive uh, tendencies, um, which made me think about um, another film that came out in 1964, <clears throat> Dr. Strangelove by Stanley Kubrick, which is uh, in some ways about the same thing. You know, that opening sequence of like the, bomber planes like being refueled midair and it's like this weird kind of like uh mechanical sex scene uh over and over and over these these uh planes docking which we've talked we've talked ad nauseum on this podcast about docking every other word uh, just docking 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 we have completely covered docking our favorite uh, kind of pants are dockers. <laughs> uh, our favorite shithead scientist is Richard Dawkins. But yeah, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you can see, like, uh, you're talking about the the uh, destruction of this shack as being this sort of like almost like erotic catharsis thing going on. There's a or before that when they're still all in the little room and they're like laying on the floor, um, Corrado, um, Richard Harris's character, like he he like kicks his foot through the wall on accident, like busts he, through the wall. Would you say he penetrates it? It, it? Yeah, that's where I'm going with this, because uh, you know they're they're having this very like heated, um, like playful but like deeply sexual conversation, and all of a sudden his foot's just like pop through the wall you know and it's like oh huh wonder <laughs> yeah. what that's supposed to represent um right and he apologizes he's like oh i'm sorry i'm sorry but the guy uh, the shack owner i forget his name is like oh no never apologize it's fine don't worry about it and it's like he's the one that's there the whole time like 
being very permissive to all of this and he's like straight up undressing um i can't remember the character it's not linda that's his wife i think but the other one uh amelia um just like unbuttoning her dress and rubbing her back and all this shit and like ru- running his hand up their legs and stuff yeah they're they're just going like i said it's blue balls in the red room um they're just not quite free enough to make it happen. And again, we're talking about Eros, not, you know, some sort of very specific, uh, orgy. Um, and, 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 and that lack of freedom, their sort of reticence to engage in this, like we said, manifests in this, sublimated like destructive behavior yeah and, and something else that, that comes out in that scene and also kind of in this um climat- climactic scene where uh, juliana goes and finds the the foreign sailor it, it's this idea or i think it for me it comes out of this idea that we have especially in america which is to be european is to be worldly like you is to be metropolitan and all this sort of stuff yeah. So you assume if someone's European that they, oh, they've traveled the world and they speak a billion languages and all that, which you know, there are people like that. But what I liked about this film is all the, all the people are very sort of, I don't know, kind of cloistered off in this like northern Italian world. And it, it kind of shows up, as I said, in that, that final scene where she's talking to the sailor, but also in this scene in this this kind of like Riverside shack when uh, the guy's employee shows up with a girl. Yeah. And uh, he he w- wants to ask him about the uh, the special oil that you like rub on your wang so you can have sex for hours that, that what they do in Africa. And he, he like t- explains it to him of like oh you mix it. It, it he says it's like it's like hippo fat or no crocodile fat and like special mm-hmm. thirteen herbs and spices or whatever and you you like rub it into the crocodile fat. And yeah, they've got they've got that now at like Quicksack. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, you can go into. <laughs> Go into your local Circle K and get it. Um, that and a five-hour energy, and you've got yourself a fucking good time. A fucking good time. <laughs> um, it, and it's just interesting to see that. It, you know, the, and it kind of, it turns into some semi kind of philosophical discussion of like, you have no way of knowing what somebody in another country does, and they do things that we would that we haven't heard of, and we do things that they, and like that sort of. Some bad hombres, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was just, I, I thought it was cause you know, you, it's, it's one thing to represent this sort of like model metropolitan globe trotting European character. But here we have these characters that are like, don't they use magic, you know, boner oil in Africa? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard about that. And like explaining how it works. Um, it, it is interesting to, to hear, uh, it, it seems like a lot of Americans think that, America or uh, not even America, but Americans are just like categorically more racist than Europeans. And <laughs> like, where did the racism come from originally? <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's like, I mean, maybe on a, you know, maybe the people you've met from America are more racist than the people you've met from Europe. But that, I don't think that's how they're making, you know, coming to that conclusion. And, you know, it's interesting having worked, several times with uh, uh, students from all over the world, especially 
in uh, Saudi Arabia, they have some pretty terrible stories from, you know, like just like public transportation in Europe, uh, just like blatant racism. Uh, so let it be known everywhere is racist all the time, everywhere. That's that's our first T-shirt. We're gonna print up. It'll <laughs> say "Everywhere is racist, racist" all the time, and, and on the back it says "Everywhere." Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, just to see that in this film, because I think the what this film kind of did for me is like when you think of European films, or at least when I do, I have like a very specific. I think of like La Dolce Vita, which is you know a very different kind of movie. But here we have a northern Italian city, which is like northern Italy for a long time and, and maybe still is. I'm not entirely familiar. It was like the industrial, grimy, you know, very blue collar part. Whereas southern Italy is the more like what you think of when you think of like vacationing in Italy. Um, so here you have a landscape that is very firmly, you know, European, Italian, but also is like, looks like something out of like uh october sky or something it's extremely you know dingy everything's covered in this like black suit um and there's the the famous thing where antonioni was like painting trees and stuff to make them look you know even darker and like blend in with the rest of this kind of desolation he was trying to create yeah um, everything's like dirty and wet and muddy all the time even their apartment, which is this kind of very modern looking space, is, is not like super surgically clean or anything like that. Um, so well, that. It, uh, oh, sorry. Go on. No, I'm, I'm pretty much done. Well, that uh, article that's on Criterion about this film is uh, mentions, you know, some of that stuff that you're talking about, the painting, painting of the landscape, that sort of thing. Um, let me find it here. Oh shit! I was googling what the porn. name Corrado meant, and I lost my porn. Google porn. <laughs> I just just I just typed in porn. That's how you find it. Um, well, shit. Now I've what? What were we? I've lost my train of thought here. <laughs> Painting. What, what trees, was the last thing you thing. said? Talking about the just the look and how everything oh, is so here it is. desolate. Here it, is. here it is. So he's talking about how uh, um, in like the 20 years between World War II and this film, uh, economic development really took hold in Italy. Uh, and especially this like petrochemical industry. And they mentioned the actual companies, Sarum, S-A-R-O-M, and Anik, A-N-I-C. Those, those are real companies specifically mentioned in the film. Uh, so I, I think maybe pre-World War II, Northern Italy was still, you know, kind of a, a, a pastoral, you know, what, maybe what you think of when you think of like rural Italy. And then after World War II, development was the name of the game and you got this fucking ugly desecrated uh landscape yeah um 
and I, I was just kind of skimming through this this art the same article and i found the part you were talking about where he was talking about uh women as these kind of spiritual barometers yeah and these these other quotes where he says it's right after that sentence where he says i know what you're talking about the, the split between morality and science is also the split between man and woman uh, between snowy Mount Etna and the concrete wall on the housing estate. <laughs> and it says yeah, he said I, so en- enigmatically, which is, yeah, enigmatically, definitely. Enigmatically, yeah. Um, so that that's an interesting, and, and Antonioni seems like a, I don't know, he seems very European when he answers questions <laughs> about things. On a, I don't know if you saw this on the Wikipedia page, but it's this whole thing where he's, it says Antonioni dismissed simple interpretations of the film as a condemnation of industrialism. And this, this quote is coming from a book uh, by a, a few authors. I think it's like a, like an edited collection called Michelangelo Antonioni, the investigation. And it says uh, it's too simplistic to say as many people have done that I'm condemning the inhuman industrial world, which oppresses the individuals and leads them to neurosis. My intention was to translate the poetry of the world in which even factories can be beautiful the line and curves of factories and their chimneys can be more beautiful than the outline of trees, which we are already too accustomed to seeing. It is a rich world. <laughs> it is a rich world, alive and serviceable. The neurosis I sought to describe in Red Desert is above all a matter of adjusting. There are people who do adapt and others who can't manage, perhaps because they are too tied to ways of life that are by now out of date. I feel like he's full of shit. I feel like what happened is he made this movie. And it's so on the nose and people pointed it out and he had to make it seem more enigmatic than it was. It's like, like, actually, it's the opposite of what you're saying. Yeah. No, you don't get it. Uh, <laughs> well, it, I, I, all I'll say is if, if that's what he's trying to communicate, I'm not sure he did a great job uh, because what he shows is a, our landscapes, um, you know, sort of on the brink of becoming hell where people, you know, can't see 20 feet in front of them. Um, human beings swallowed by their own industrial, uh, nightmare they've created and, um, and the breakdown of the human psyche at the hands of all that. So if he's not trying to critique it, he didn't do a very good job of that. Yeah, and there there are two scenes that kind of speak against this. Uh, well, I mean, there the whole movie speaks against it. I, you know, I, I more or less agree with you, but but two that come to mind are one. There's the scene where the, the streets in this movie and the and then this town are just empty. You see like three people walking around, uh, but there's a scene where Juliana's uh, like out on the street and there's an old man sitting next to like a wagon, and the wall behind them is gray. The man's in a gray suit and the wagon is like painted gray. So you see all of, like everything just blending into this with like one shade of gray. And it, that to me is a sort of perfect encapsulation of what you're talking about of people literally being swallowed, like becoming one with this, you know, smoggy industrial hellscape that is being created. Um, and then there's also, when uh, Richard Harris's character, it's after they have the meeting with the workers that they're taking to Argentina and they're in like, I don't know if it's like a glass factory or like a wine 
bottling place, but you, you know, they have the big glass containers that are all stacked yeah. up. And he's like walking through outside where they have them all stacked up and like hay in between them. And he's just sort of like walking and he like looks down and sees a beer bottle and just like kicks it. It, it like it would have been a perfect time for him to like kick the beer bottle and be like, goddamn fucked up piece of shit. It's <laughs> like walking around. Um, it's just sort of, I don't know, like th- those two scenes and, and all, all the other ones um, kind of speak out against what Antonio Oni is saying. So even though he's the one that created the art and you're supposed to listen to what they have to say, I think in this case, I, I disagree with what he's I'm saying. Gonna, I'm going to stick by my theory that I just put out. Like he's having to kind of mystify it because it's so on the nose. Um, we're going to go full death of the author on this one. Yeah. Especially, I mean, look at the ending, man. We're like, you know, the little boy Valerio, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, why is the smoke yellow? And she's like, because it's poison and the birds know not to fly. If the birds fly through there, they're going to die. Um, and, and so if he's, he's talking about adaptation, like it's a good thing, um, I mean, and it's a good thing in as much as survival is a good thing, but to just say that, you know, we have to adapt and that's beautiful. That's, that is like so pragmatic. It's depressing. Uh, Oh, the birds don't fly near the poison. So that's beautiful. Like, uh, I just, I don't buy it for a second. Uh, it's weird. It seems like it's like in the gap in the time between when he made it and when he talked about it, you know, when it was released, it's like he changed his mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd more or less agree with you. Um, yeah, one thing I want, I want to talk about, because I feel like this is probably a reason why most film experts like this movie but I just want to talk about Monica Vitti's performance because at times yeah. I found myself being very annoyed by it. Um, just because it is, in my opinion, was like over the top in a way that was like unappealing to me. Um, and so much so like the scene where her and, and Corrado are, are in bed and he's like kissing her and she's like, I don't know what having conniption fits or like whatever it is she's doing. Um, Lava kind of looked over and was like, what's happening? <laughs> and then I was like, I, I don't know. She has issues and I'm not really sure. Um, but you know, for the, there, there are parts where I think like the performance is excellent. Like I really enjoy the scene where she's talking to the sailor and he doesn't know what she's saying and she's like explaining herself. Um, she says, uh, everything that happens to me is my life. That's all. Yeah. yeah, this is this is a film about the beauty of the industrial age. <laughs> um, but you know the there are other scenes where she's like, just her exasperation and and you know freaking out all the time was just kind of got old. And I don't know if that's like kind of the point. That like what she's going through is very serious, but it's tiring to those around her or what whatever. But I just kind of didn't care for it at a lot of moments. And some of that might be a result of 1964. I was 
I watched an episode of last week tonight with John Oliver recently, and there was a clip of, uh, I guess it was uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where James Stewart's doing his his famous filibuster, mm-hmm. and they show show a clip from it, and it you know cuts back to John Oliver, and he goes, he's like, yeah, he was a bad actor, <laughs> uh, but it, I mean. Acting just in general has, I think, I don't know how this sounds, but it has improved as time goes on. Like people get better uh, at acting. Yeah. Um, it's certainly become more and, realistic unless you're like in a David Lynch movie, in which right, case like, that's like, part of the effect. And directors get better at shaping uh, you know, how, how human emotion is conveyed. So, you know, the same way when you're young and you watch a movie that maybe has special effects, you don't notice how campy it is and you watch it later and you, and you do maybe in 1964, this was like a daring sort of, uh, psychologically astute performance. Um, cause there, it seems to me there there probably weren't a ton of films in 1964 about the alienating psychological impacts of industrial pollution. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so this was sort of tough, uh, emotive territory, tough sledding. (laughs) Yeah. No. Yeah. And and that makes sense because it is like, like I said, at some moments it's kind of like pitch perfect, but then there's moments where she's like, like you know grasping at her face or like doing weird stuff with her hands and i'm just like uh it's don't like this if if uh this was a an article that would be like the blurb the oversized font blurb in the middle <laughs> i was like uh i don't like it's this like, uh, i don't <laughs> like it like have you um you've seen a dangerous method right have you seen that yeah yeah, it's, I. You're gonna. You've talked about this before. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, what's her name? Kira Knightley's like, like jaw. She like unhinges her jaw and is like, ah, ah, ah. it's like you made a you made a tasteless comment about how Kira Knightley would be like having sex with a bicycle. No, no, no. That was that was a friend. No, of it mine. was you, and you signed off on it, and you endorsed it, and you said you agreed with a it. A friend of mine, his his girlfriend at the time, wrote a poem. <laughs> About his obsession with her, and she said that she imagined having sex with Karen Knightley would be like having sex with a bicycle. Hmm. Which maybe that's your thing. It's 2020, man. I'm not here to judge. <laughs> if you're a Schwinn fucker, you're a Schwinn yeah. fucker. New year, new me. Do what feels right. Get you a mongoose. <laughs> Get you a mongoose <laughs> with the extra fat pegs on the side. Uh, Get pegged by a mongoose. Um, oh we man, was um, shit. I can't remember what we were talking about. Now. Well, let me see. Uh, I've got. I've got some. Okay, sound pollution. Also, uh, okay. uh, uh, you know, in addition to the sort of air pollution, I think sound is used in interesting ways. Uh, I mean, it's not that complicated. It's just. Everything sounds terrible. Especially the uh, Love Shack scene when there's that 
the foghorn or whatever it is that sounds every every few seconds it seems like like every 30 seconds or something so they're just like sitting there and then you hear that like really annoying sound kind of off in the distance which i would like yeah. it would happen and then i would forget about it and then it would happen again and then I, would, I would forget about it um do you think do you think that's why they can't pull the trigger on the on the red room orgy because they're constantly drawn out of it by this uh, terrible sound. Maybe, and then the ship, the ship coming in with yeah. the uh, quarantine, which is another. I don't know. That, to me, that seems like almost because you know, uh, flying a yellow flag for quarantine—that's a very like old nautical thing. Um, mm. So to see it on like a modern, you know, giant ass cargo ship is—it was sort of. I don't know, it was intriguing to me because I'd never really seen that and I didn't know that was like a thing that still occurred. Although I guess if it needed to, it would still go down pretty much the same way. Um, here's a lot of stuff of like the outside world kind of, and you know, you could read them tearing down the shed as this kind of cathartic thing, which I think it is, but it's also that, you know, this shelter is crumbling, like it's just falling apart around them and, and the outside world is coming in via the sound and you know, the sounds of the water and the water itself and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. It seems like he, uh, Antonioni really used all the tools he had on this one. Like you said, he's, it's his first, um, color film, but he's, so he's using, you know, doing very interesting things with, with the look of the film. I mean, just the first shot where you see, um, <clears throat> Monica VT and the, her son Valerio they're wearing these sort of bright uh, she's wearing like a bright green coat um, almost like a jungle green and the sky is just this terrible gray and so it sort of it seems like it's suggesting a kind of uh, an important separateness of like this you know people from the environment um She's wearing like, like nice like dress shoe, like high heels almost, and like walking. Yeah, and down her the her husband it says of all you know uh, of all the shoes you have, you wear these, mm -hmm. which is to give you a sort of characterization of the you know he's commenting on what clothes she wears, um, but also yes to suggest the uh, what do you want to call it like. Uh, just how the, the individual and, and their environment, they're like not conducive to one another um, in this in this industrial world. Yeah. And then there's uh, that famous, uh, the same opening is that, uh, that scene where they, you know, she buys the sandwich from the guy for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, what is that? I, I don't know. It was weird. And, and she like runs behind the bushes to eat it. And then... Her, she sort of like notices like turns and looks around her and everything is just like black it's almost like that that sort of backdrop from first reform but like more depressing because everything's just covered over uh, yeah and she like drops the sandwich yeah just like throws it on the ground no yeah i don't i don't really get the sandwich uh, i thought that was i wasn't really sure what i, could, I, th I thought maybe like 
maybe they're like on hard times and that's like a thing that's happening, but they're, they're pretty well off compared to the yeah. rest of the, the city. Uh, so I don't really know. Looked like a nice sandwich. Yeah, it looks, it looked great. Um, a superb sandwich and she just throws it on the ground. I'm sure Antonioni will, would tell us this is a, like the key to the whole film. <laughs> it's like, that's why you don't understand it. You will never understand this film if you don't understand the sandwich. Yeah, and she clearly like buys it for herself. Because she offers some to her son, but it seemed like almost an afterthought of like, oh, hey, do you want some? <laughs> yeah, like, and then she like runs away. Yeah. And, the, and the, her son is not with her when she starts chowing down on it uh, after she's run away. Like, I'm, I'm puzzled by this. My, my only like thought is like maybe... Because and this is like maybe a stereotype about Italian way of life, but I don't think so. Is like f- food and eating is like a communal thing, as it is in many cultures. So yeah. the fact that she's like trying to like get this food and run off and eat it by herself is the the inverse of that, and it kind of represents this extreme alienation that she feels with society. Um, yeah, and and the fact that the guy says he bought it from like. Uh, uh, essentially like a gas station or something. Yeah. He's like, I just got it down the street. Uh, so I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that's, that's part. Can you imagine if, if like your local gas station had that sandwich, <laughs> but yeah, that's only, only kind of reading that I can think of, but that, I don't know, maybe that that's stretching it. Um, here's another note to, uh, Richard Harris's character, Corrado. Uh, he keeps talking, about uh, how he likes to travel mm-hmm. and this is kind of familiar territory i think for this for this podcast uh, it seems like he likes traveling because all the places he goes get destroyed as this sort of industrial capitalist you know uh, like no one extols the virtues of travel like the wealthy industrialist because I mean, traveling for them is essentially leaving, you know, mm-hmm. it's just leaving the place that they've just. Yeah. Cause like when, uh, when Juliana asks him what he's taking of his personal effects, he's like, nothing. <laughs> he's like, I'm just, I'm bouncing out. Um, so yeah, like you're saying for that, that sort of industrial management class movement is, is like a constant thing, but it's not like, it's like a way to not really put down roots to not connect with a community instead you and to not have to deal with the consequences of their actions yeah Yeah. it sort of like reminds me of up in the air (laughs) different kind of situation but like yeah moving around a lot not having not having any sort of like hard connections to any place Um, yeah we've 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 talked about that movie in relation to some other ideas i think especially with fight club i think we we should probably come back to that movie that that one sticks out in my mind a lot yeah i mean yeah i'd be i haven't seen it uh in a while so i'd be willing to, to watch it again isn't that like anna kendrick's first big oh i think film? she did a movie maybe maybe first big movie she did a movie called rocket science that was really cool mm. uh but that was more independent uh really cool movie but uh and now yeah she's that was like, probably her big breakout role yeah. maybe and like for some reason this past year she was like the global ambassador for Christmas 
<laughs> just like she had, she had that Disney movie that was like no, a, Noel. I, I, think I watched like the first half of that movie just out of curiosity, and it's dog shit. It, but then she also had like a Pepsi or like Frito Lay Pepsi commercial that played constantly. Uh, oh, they used my favorite say. things as the backdrop. Anyway, um, yeah, we should come back to that movie at, at some point. Yeah, it's very effective and just like the scene of her firing the guy over the computer is is sort of like perfect for you know something that when when did that movie come out like 2010 or something 10 or 11 yeah it seems like um and we were putting it in the film to be like hey look at how fucking awful this is and now it's like <laughs> that's like par for the course stuff like yeah, that yeah in that movie she gets broken up with via text and I think George Clooney sort of quips, oh, that's sort of like being fired through email or, you know. Uh, yeah, it is. I, I bet it would be kind of dated yeah. watching it now. You, like, oh, that's quaint. <laughs> quick uh, quick kind of like f- funny aside is I got a uh, rejection email from a, a job, like a tenure track job I applied for. I got it like last week. Um, I applied for that job a year ago (laughs) and they just now, this was like for the the hiring cycle for last fall, this past fall. And, uh, they just sent me the rejection. I was like, Oh, thanks guys. I kind of assumed, but thanks for the update. Yeah. That's cool of you to tell me, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, um, (laughs) red desert. I want to, so what do you think of, of well i actually before we talk about the the ending part i want to talk about her kid faking being paralyzed cuz that was a little strange to me and yeah. it almost seemed as if like once again the men in her life are disappointing her and like fucking with her and gaslighting her and stuff like that well isn't it though that i think so he's he's he can't walk and again like you said earlier this is everything's on like a metaphorical level here not even really trying to to make the metaphors work in a in the real world so if i remember correctly he can't walk and then she tells him the story about the pink beach mm-hmm. and then he can hmm is that right? Yeah. Well, she kind of catches him walking. She like walks by his room and he's like, he gets up out of a chair and walks away. Um, so but isn't that after she it tells is after him the, the story? story? Yeah. Which it maybe, okay. maybe cause that story in itself it, is something else. Yeah. It was a, a, a welcome diversion in like the cinematography and the setting and everything. Um, it's very sort of vibrant. Yeah, you go from a world that like might as well be black and white for all of the color that it has in it to this beach with like beautiful sea and a pink beach sand or pink sand beach and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so it seemed like uh, maybe the suggestion was that, you know, just in order to to be able to to move about and to function, you kind of have to have this uh pastoral not pastoral but uh i don't know what you call it vibrant myth 
you know, uh, this myth of a of a vibrant world has to inform your life, even in a a desolate world. Uh, you know, I'm I, I'm not sure. I'm re- I'm kind of reaching there, but uh, I'm just not 100 percent sure what to do with it. Yeah, and the the rocks singing to to this girl in the story, which is usually in in something like that, like a myth like that or a fable, the the earth communicating with you would would be representative of of just that of like the earth trying to tell you something. But in the story, like the girl doesn't really seem to be doing anything that would warrant the earth like communicating with her as like a warning or anything like that but maybe it's just like a i don't know like a show of solidarity or something um or like the ship coming and being like a ghost ship kind of and just leaving again yeah uh, which is is that one that might make a little bit more sense of like if you think about juliana as like wanting connection with other people but then when she gets it it's never like fulfilling or they don't really understand her or she doesn't can't form a kind of connection that she needs um so you know the ship comes and you communicate but then it doesn't really end up mattering very much yeah Um, but yeah the rock thing the rock singing i don't really get it maybe i'm a dumbass i don't know i i can sort of feel something that i don't really know how to express that uh, i keep thinking of the word like uh, animate it's like the world in the myth in the story the world is animate and it, it makes me think of the annie dillard essay teaching a stone to talk um about the muteness of the world and how i mean you see in most of the uh, film red desert the world is uh, the only sounds you hear are these very shrill industrial sounds that we ourselves have created. And then to have in this story, which again feels like some sort of myth, uh, to have these rocks sort of singing suggests a sort of animate world that is sort of deep within our psyches that doesn't really exist. And what does exist is this dead gray world where the only sounds you hear are these shrill industrial sirens. Um, yeah, there's there's certainly a contrast being hammered home there. But uh, I really, really like that sequence. And I, I can't really say why. Yeah, and it could be. I mean, if, if you think about it as like the world being animate and and living and having a voice and having some sort of agency, it's it's a pretty stark contrast with the actual world of the movie where it's very much like dominated by industry and you don't really see many natural settings. Even when you're next to a river or a, or a bay or whatever, you are in some sort of usually in some sort of interior or like the view of the water is blocked by a giant ship or something like that. Yeah. Something we didn't mention is when she's eating the sandwich alone, there's like one really specifically framed shot where the, 
you see just like fire shooting into the air yes. right next to her head. Yeah. That reminded me of, um, so growing up, if we wanted to go to like a mall or to like a moderately sized city, we would go to Huntington, West Virginia. And it's just over the river from Kentucky. And on the Kentucky side is Ashland. And that's where uh, Ashland Oil was located, which was a still is a big like petrochemical conglomerate. But at the time, it was just like, I guess, not quite so big. Now it's like a $5 billion company. Um, wow. But there was a like a refinery or something like, I don't know exactly what it was, like right on the river there. Probably just like dumping shit into the river constantly. Um but on the Kentucky side and at night, if we were like coming back, you would see it just like lit up this giant, like it looked like something out of like a video game or something like where you go to fight the final boss. Um, this is big, like industrial thing that's all lit up. And that, that flame kind of reminded me of that, of like those weird industrial things that you see just like pop up in the world and you're like, oh, that's a little uncanny and weird. Yeah. Yeah, there's something very similar at the uh, – you, maybe you've seen it when you're driving out to my house. The uh, dump, like the Walter Hill dump out there has oh, like yeah. an incinerator or something like that. Well, I, I thought you meant just like the hills that are just like stripped bare like the uh, landfill. Well, yeah, it's right in front of that. Yeah, yeah which is, is real fucking weird to see, which is like – it's like a perfect encapsulation of like – america's wrongs if you drive down that road because at first you see the giant va hospital where there's probably like dudes who you know were injured in afghanistan being screwed over in there and you drive a little bit and then there's just a fucking landfill well that's a golf course yeah golf course yeah yeah. Uh, Yeah. nice soccer complex and then after that you get to my house and (laughs) then that's the the real fun begins (laughs) um so yeah that's um that yeah i remember that shot though because i remember watching it being like oh that's that's kind of that has to be intentional right because it's like behind her is just like trees and bushes and stuff and then just like flame shooting up (laughs) yeah um just going through my notes here um here one thing i wanted to say is that I had the thought that like the radical critiques uh, that Antonioni apparently is not making according to him, uh, but the radical critiques of like culture and society, you uh, earlier alluded to Marcuse, uh, but like that sort of stuff has not been resolved you know, or maybe in like theory, like academic theories it has, but like the stuff being critiqued in the sixties and then later in the seventies environmental movement has not been resolved. Uh, no, it's, it's only, uh, let's see, I've got it written down here. Progress has largely been not the reimagining of ugly industrialism, but a painting over of it or just a simple hiding of it. And it made me think of a conversation we had when we watched Wally about the sort of sleek sexiness of like Apple products um, and how they're really hiding this sort of infinitely terrible world. Like the simplicity of an Apple product is a result of all this um, 
you know, in quotes, progress and development and research. That is just the, the next step in this technological march. Uh, and, and so nothing, just because you can have the internet in a phone in your pocket does not somehow make it like uh, less complicated and convoluted. And I think you see that a lot with like the issue of e-waste. Everyone sort of, you know, it's like save the trees and like computers are the solution to like uh, cutting down rainforests as if computers and technology created no waste, which is absurd because they're full of, you know, mind elements and then we ship them to Ghana and give kids cancer uh, and, and write it off as a, you know, it's a tax write off. Anyway, uh, it just, it made me think watching this movie, you see all this, what seemed to me to be a clear critique of uh, industrial development and the sort of inhuman scale of industrial society, especially um, none of this has been really changed uh, in a, in a way that would suggest actual progress. It's just been smothered and rearranged and covered up and, and hidden better. And, and that's why, climate change marches on at accelerating rates. Um, none of these things that are happening in 1964 have been improved upon. And in some, in some cases they've gotten, well, yes. in most cases have gotten worse. Yes. Um, I was listening to a episode of the dig, which is a Jacobin produced podcast and uh, the interviews with uh, two of the authors of this book called A Planet to Win While We Need the Green New Deal or A Green New Deal. It's a verso book, I believe. And they were talking about uh, some of these kinds of issues. And a, a big thing that they identify, well, for instance, they talk about how like electric cars are seen as like a silver bullet. <clears throat> but <clears throat> the materials, like you're saying, materials that go into making the batteries and a lot of the other things are, you know, usually mined taken out of the the global south mined by people in the global south that are kind of exploited and then you know the the cost of them they end up being like carbon neutral and offsetting that sort of stuff but there are all these other associated issues that make them far from a perfect solution especially if you maintain this kind of american idea that it, it's freedom to have your own vehicle and your own sort of individual mode of transportation and you are kind of pushing at public transport group transport in any sort of way. Um, but they also talk about the idea of like the problem is so many of these things, uh, possible solutions aren't seen as like, we need this to mitigate the, you know, effects of, of climate change, but they're seen as, Hey, this is going to open up an exciting new market so people can get richer or you can stockpile money. So electric cars and, uh, mass sort of group, transit using electric cars isn't seen as like, Hey, this is something that locality should do in order to <laughs> a provide transport and, you know, B be more sort of environmentally conscious, but they're seen as like, Hey, this is a way for companies like Lyft and Uber to make a fuck ton of money. Um, 
while exploiting their labor force like to the nth degree um yeah it's it's absurd the the question is how can we neutralize the harmful effects of massification on a massified scale uh, it's <laughs> yeah. it's contradictory it's apparent like that's not you you cannot solve the problems of of an inhuman scale society on an inhuman scale uh you cannot mass produce the solution to uh, emissions born of mass production. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, there are a lot of other issues like we've talked about a lot, but like individual choice really isn't the problem here. Although it's going to keep being sold to you as part of the problem. Like you should buy a Prius. You should use reusable food packaging all that which you know you should do that's you know a, a good choice if, if it's available to you but ultimately like you're not the problem the problem is uh things like u.s military um <laughs> petrochemical companies all, all this sort of stuff yeah it's like uh, i think walmart's a good example of that it's like you know who doesn't go to walmart are like the people who live in towns that don't have walmart's <laughs> like it, it can't be an option if it's an option people will take it yeah yeah cool so i mean and, that, and that's not an infringement upon freedom that's an no. infringement upon uh destruction although like unpopular opinion that i i've been saying a lot lately is like it, it, i don't see having a million different choices of deodorant as a freedom that I value. So if I have fewer decisions of things, I don't really care. And I think like we should probably trend in that way. I should definitely trend in that way. Like yeah. I, it, to be honest, if I had fewer decisions for things, I would probably be happier because I wouldn't be reading reviews and trying to figure out like, what's the best thing that I like, what's the I, most affordable th- one that'll last the longest. I think we talked about this, how like sort of, small scale options obscure the larger scale options. So it's like if I'm thinking about which brand of deodorant to buy, I am emphatically not thinking about the social paradigm that creates, you know, 400 options of deodorant. Um, so the, so like the specific choice obscures and and disappears the uh the larger kind of uh paradigm in which those smaller choices exist it's like well i need to decide what kind of car to buy because i need a car to survive well instead you should reverse engineer that and say well why do i need a car so badly like why is it such an imperative in my life that i own a car myself like, why is it not the case that I can survive and get myself around town without it in a way right. that's not like in a way in which people don't look down upon you as if you're somehow benighted because you don't have your own CRV to drive around in or whatever? Because <laughs> um, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you see somebody who rides a bike to work, they're like, oh, look at this poor fucker riding his bike to work. It's like, that's. Yeah. Riding his mongoose. Yeah. <laughs> getting pegged by that mongoose <laughs> um anyway yeah th- so we need to get to talking about these rankings a little bit so or, oh, yeah. do you have any sort of like last thoughts 
you want to add on Red Desert? Um, very cool. Very European. I wish I hadn't known that Antonioni said what he said about it because that just feels dishonest. It adds to me. a little mystery to it. I, I like oh, it. I, it's like he's like a like a wrestling heel. He's just sort of like a, a villain coming in. I like it. Yeah. And and maybe uh <clears throat> maybe I just don't get it. Maybe I'm a Philistine. But uh it seemed pretty clear to me. I don't want to be the the man with a hammer calling everything a nail, but this one seemed seemed like a nail. <laughs> really looked like a nail. That's why I hammered it. <laughs> um No, yeah, and I agree. I, I'm not really as worried about all that stuff. I think it's kind of interesting, but I, I do think if you're going to just the fact that this movie's from 1964 is kind of amazing that it's looking at these same kinds of things. And then there were moments where it kind of gave me a similar sort of jolt that uh, first reform did um, in some of the, some of the symbolism, especially, but also kind of in some of the ways that in, in many ways, the movie's really kind of existential and how it's looking at life and existing in this kind of world. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I'm glad that we, we picked it. Yeah. Um, okay. So just talk about these lists a little bit and we both did uh, kind of a slapdash job of this. We didn't rank every single movie. Look, maybe that's something we'll look at in the future, but what I did, and I think you did something similar is I, I came up with a list of like the very cream of the crop and then I made a shorter list of the the absolute worst that we that we've seen so is there a specific yeah, way you that, that, that's what i did uh, let's i think we're gonna agree on the worst so you want to start with the worst i've got let's see uh four movies that stand out as particularly terrible okay i did five so we'll see okay my first first one, obviously, and I think this is like strong, like now, number now last with a bullet. I, I hope you're remembering the there's there's two that I think are competing for worst movie. I, but let's okay. I, I think I'm I get what you're saying, but I think I think edging this one out, Biodome is easily the worst. Okay, movie that's that what I have watched. too. What's what's your next worst? Without a paddle. Ooh, see, I picked the fifteen seventeen to Paris. Oh, dude, I for, see. I was trying to. What <laughs> I, I thought you were going to forget about that one. No, what I did is I was trying to pick one movie from the the uh, auteur episodes. Yeah. And so for for Eastwood, I picked American Sniper. Um, but fifteen to seventeen is a worse movie. It's just not as harmful. Now, okay, that see, that's we need to clarify because part of these lists, the problem is. You know, I, I wasn't sure. Are we picking like the best movies just in general or like the the most uh, sort of significant given this kind of worldview of the podcast? I just went with my favorite movies and my least favorite movies. I did that uh, for the most it would, part. It would be slightly different if if it were arranged just for the aims of the podcast. I, I did that for the most part, but I also like factored in podcast stuff a little bit. Okay. Um, but I just, I just dislike American sniper so much that I, that was the one. And to be honest, I kind of like forgot 1517 to Paris, but yeah, that I agree. That is probably 
that's easily the worst Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, apparently, yeah. his new one is not bad. I've heard some good things about it. it hmm. It's apparently very kind of like anti-cop, which is an interesting take from Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, so uh, continuing on with these, this worst movie list. Biodome, fifteen seventeen to Paris. I've got Gran Torino on there as well because it's super racist. And, yeah. and if I recall, there's uh, – particularly offensive to me in the East uh, canon is this uh, tendency to try to kind of in name only salute Christianity, but then kind of rewrite the tenets of it. Oh uh, yeah. In true you know, American it's like hyper masculine individualism. Um, anyway, that to me, Gran Torino just feels very fucked up. American Sniper's the same way. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I also put uh so without paddles on there, as I mentioned, I that, forgot about that one, man. That, that one fucking sucks. And then I also put, um, cause I wanted to pick one of these, these Berg movies. So I picked Patriot's day. God damn, I forgot. I forget about all the all cool <laughs> ones. I ranted about that one like the whole time. Yeah, Patriot's Day, awful. We were movie. trying to talk about all the movies, and I was just like, no, nah, fuck Patriot's Day. No, yeah, so that's because um, uh, Deepwater Horizon, I think we agreed, was like oddly compelling and like yeah. interesting things it was saying. But Patriot's Day is just a, just a pile of dog shit. Yeah, it's like that bin at the dog park that's full of the little bags of dog shit. That's what that movie is. (laughs) Um, And then the the last one I picked, which is like this one's probably like the highest of the lowest. It's sort of like up toward the middle is a biggest little farm. uh, Yeah, just because I didn't. But that that has a lot to do with like its message and sort of the way it's presenting things. It does have some things, some parts that I thought were. Of merit, but for the most part, I just wasn't a fan of it. I also, <clears throat> on my shit list, I had the day after tomorrow, just because <laughs> when I think back on it, it's just like so. I feel like it did more harm than good. It, it's so over the top and um, just so unsubtle and just a waste of money, mm-hmm. really. Uh, yeah, so I, I went ahead and included that one. <coughs> Sorry, just <coughs> gonna choke for a second. So, um, if that's the bottom, then we can sort of switch and talk about the top for a second. Sorry, I'm dying. Oh, okay. Um, so, do you want to do? Do you want to like do compare top ten or what do you want to do? I've got I've got a top sixteen quite arbitrary. Damn, I only did two. Uh, let me let I'll give you my I'll give you up to ten just real quick. We don't have to talk about it, and then you can sort of see what's not in my top ten. Okay. Uh, so sixteen, embrace of the serpent. Fifteen, night moves. Fourteen, fight club. Uh, Thirteen, ad astra. Twelve, I heart huckabees. And eleven Snowpiercer. <laughs> wow, Snowpiercer got up there. I fucking love Snowpiercer. Wow. Okay, cool. Wait, so, well, our number tens will be different. 
Okay. What do you got, number 10? Number 10, I had Embrace of the Serpent. Okay. <laughs> Made it. I've got Children of Men. Nice. I like Children of Men. Uh, for, for nine, I had Wendy and Lucy. I've got Melancholia at number nine. I didn't put melancholy in my top 10. It was oh, just, just on the outside. I And again, I was making this list kind of mostly independent from the podcast, just like the movies that I like. Um, so uh, at number eight, I've got the Grand Budapest Hotel. See, I, I was like, I really... I debated. I don't have any Wes Anderson in the top 10. I, I almost didn't put him on the list just because it's like, it feels kind of extraneous. It's, it's like, like cheating yeah, of on course. Uh, I could have just put all those movies as like the top eight or whatever. Yeah. But so I don't have any of those, but for my number eight, I have her. Okay. Okay. Her. And so uh, at seven, I have mother. I don't have mother in my top anything. Um, oh wow yeah that's that's interesting because i it seems like a lot of what we said about mother was like very cool very smart who is this for (laughs) yeah well it's it's this thing where i have this with some movies where like i do not want to rewatch it but yeah if it ever if it comes up or if i like see something about it or i just think of it randomly i like think about it for a while yeah so i figured Um, it would warrant a spot up there weirdly that makes me want to watch it again i have like the blu-ray because i wrote some paper on it i had to like watch it a couple times but uh maybe i'll watch it again yeah not a perfect film by any means but uh, compelling to me um number seven take take shelter oh okay number seven that was your number seven okay interesting my number seven is take shelter my number six is take shelter my number six is her, which your was your number eight. Is <laughs> yeah, that right? Yeah. Okay. Take cool. shelter. Just like just fucking love that movie. Everyone should watch it. Uh, it's just great. Great. Never. I were, I remember we were, at least I was kind of nervous to do that one because I wasn't sure how relevant it was going to be. Cause I'd seen it before when it came out and then I watched it. And I was like, Oh, this movie is about climate change. Yep. Yeah, like that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I and also like away. when we when we do our like you know Oscar awards for the movies of the podcast, Michael Shannon like is going to be in contention to win my my best actor because his performance as Curtis in that film is just fantastic. Yeah, sleep well in your beds. <laughs> Storm <laughs> is coming. Um, so, what's your number five? All right, we're on to the top five here. This is – these ain't no slashies, folks. Do you know what that's from? No, I don't. <laughs> that is uh, – oh, shit. What's his name? It's from Zoolander. What's the guy's name? The guitar player, singer? Uh, Lenny Kravitz? Is he? Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. Yes, thank you. These ain't no slashies, folks. These are the pure breeds. Um, okay, number five. Certain women. Kelly Reichert. See, I, I, I figured you it would be up there because you really like that. I think certain women would be like somewhere between like, it would be somewhere in the, the next five, like 11 to 15 range for me. 
For, uh, that last sequence uh, of the three uh, sort of short narratives, the last one with what's her name, uh, is <laughs> like I, I can't get out of my head. I loved it. Yeah, uh, my number five is Children of Men. Okay, that makes sense. I fucking love that movie. Like I uh, watching it again for the podcast. I was just like, oh, I've I've missed this. Like that's what. Unlike Mother, that's a movie that I could watch like once a week and just be fine yeah. with it. Dude, you know what we need to do? So Roma is getting a criterion in February. The week that that comes out, that's the movie we're doing. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. And if, if you don't agree to that, I'm just going to watch that one. And that's the movie <laughs> I'm going to talk about. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. But in Roma... Um, oh, oh! You watched uh, Kung Fu Panda Two. I watched. You, Roma. you watched Kung Pao Enter the Fist. Uh, that, so that's a great movie. Number four. Number four for me, Peter and the Farm. D- nailed it. Me too. Yes. <laughs> Fucking that might be my favorite documentary. Although now I'm kind of upset because I forgot if a tree falls. But that's that's like so sort of topical that I, I don't know if it would have made my top ten anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, Peter and the Farm, fantastic. Quattro, awesome. Uh, number three, leave no trace. Ding, ding, ding. Nailed yes, it. there it is. Leave okay, no trace. Now th- this is this is getting interesting. I feel like we're gonna uh, have the same two, but maybe oh, not but, the same but, order. But in the same order. That's the question. I I I doubt it because. Okay, you have to go first now. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I think what's going to happen is going to flip because I, I kind of took podcast concerns into consideration. But for number two, I have There Will Be Blood. I do not have There Will Be Blood for number two. I have First Reformed. Okay, yeah. And then I'll I, give you one guess I, at what my number one is. So my number one is There Will Be Blood. Yours is First, first Reformed. Reformed. Yes. Yeah, and, and if I were taking just podcast stuff into consideration, I probably would have done First Reformed first. It's the movie we started with. It's got first in the title. It's honestly, I feel like that movie, our conversations about that movie, is kind of what led to the podcast, really, right? Yeah, pretty much. We both saw that movie, and I would not shut the fuck up about it. I made like everyone I know watch it. And uh, you were like one of three people who like actually kind of had a similar response that I had. It like really got to me. And uh, and here we are. So and and there there will be blood. I mean, PTA is unbeatable. And and I've seen there will be blood probably 15 times. Yeah. like if I were to strip away like all podcast stuff, like there will be blood is clearly, I think the, the best movie. Uh, it's just like in a class by itself in a lot of ways. Um, I think the best movie of that decade of this century so far. Yeah. Maybe of the 21st century. Um, and, and what's amazing is that it didn't win best picture because the only contender for you know, best, the only other contender for best movie of the century is no country for old men. Uh, yep. which was, you know, nominated the same year and won. Yeah. And they're both like, they both have that thing going where it's like, 
if the great American novel is really a movie. Although yeah. that's more complicated with no country because it was a novel. Uh, but, but like they're, they're both there will playing be the sort of American mythology of the West mm-hmm. and kind of playing against it. And uh, yeah, it's uh, that was a, a great year for movies. Yeah. But I just want to like shout out to leave no trace and Peter in the farm, which is too like, yeah, powerhouses. we watch, we, we watch those only for the podcast and uh, yeah, fucking phenomenal. Yes. Um, Leave No Trace is one of the saddest movies I've ever seen, and it's rated PG. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an incredibly sad movie in which no one dies. <laughs> yeah, well, at least not on camera. Yeah, on not screen. on camera. Um, and like Peter and the Farm too. Like those those are just like uh, all those top four. Although there will be blood is a little bit of a different kind of experience for me, but. Especially, or well, specifically, first reform, leave no trace. Peter and the Farm are, are movies where they like, they just are so kind of like viscerally impactful when you watch them that you can't help but feel like you've changed in some way at the end of them. Which I feel is like the highest compliment you can give a film or any kind of work of art. It's like you come out the other end like I've changed a tiny bit. I'm no longer the person I was yesterday. Yeah, you're you're moved. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, just, yeah. and that's that's honestly how I felt with First Reformed. Is like I, I've just never seen a, another movie that was so seemingly specific that felt so universally powerful. You know, it's like it's about climate change, but it's also about despair and 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 reactions to despair. And I think what's most brilliant about First Reformed is how it sets the issue of climate change in this context of the military-industrial-technology complex. And you you see that the way to really kind of uh, overcome climate change is not by implementing a specific policy, not even really by electing <clears throat> a, a specific candidate, uh, you know, in and of itself, but it's it's a complete paradigm shift. Um, and, and really, as, as sort of cliche as it sounds, it's like love, like we earlier we were talking about Eros and like a society geared towards uh, death and, and that is so good at killing people and that is so equipped to uh, facilitate there's just there's really something to the to the idea of the military industrial technology complex uh, that that I I think in that movie the ending that embrace, uh, between Toller and Mary is a not just a rejection of that military industrial technology world, but an embrace of this other thing, this Eros. Yeah. Um, and, and that, the movie says, is the antidote to this crisis. And, and we talked a lot about that N plus one review where the guy, where the reviewer says, uh, uh, you know, First Reformed says there's nothing to be done about climate change. We should take refuge 
in loved ones, which, you know, as we said in that episode, just totally misses the metaphors um, that are, you know, pretty apparent in that movie. And I think there's layers and wisdom in that movie. Um, and it, it's hard to beat. Yeah. Like you want to get real cliche. It's like you can have faith in the system. You can have faith in God, but most importantly, you have to have faith in your fellow man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, which is, you it's know, a heady I, any, thing. I think any good, you know, any work of art worth its worth its name is going to be, I think, reducible to a cliche like that. Uh, at least, you know, semantically, because, you know, cliches are usually true. Like, yeah, there's a, one of the, for my money, like one of the best endings of any novel is, uh, Uzo Dinma Aiwiela's Beasts of No Nation, which it's in the, the, this part's in the movie too. And I taught this book in a class once and it's like one of the few times I've almost like cried in front of my class because I think it's so beautiful. Um, <laughs> it's kind of clear, but it's like, it's because it, it lays things out in such a simple way where it's, you have this novel of this kid who's been turned into a child soldier and he does all these horrible things and commits murders and sees all these awful things. And then at the end, he's in this place where they're trying to like rehabilitate these kids who've been through this awful shit. And they're talking to him and asking him like how this things he did made him feel. And he, he just says, well, you want to call me a monster? You want to call me a killer? Like, fine. Sure. I am all of those things. But I had a mother once and she loved me. And it's just sort of like one of the, like a beautiful, like universal thing that's like you could be like, oh, it's cliche, but it's just sort of like so true in that moment when it happens that you're just like, oh my God. That's just like a beautiful sentiment. Uh and first reformed, even though it's like not as straightforward as that, kind of leaves you with a, a similar kind of feeling of like there's some sort of kernel of of truth as far as the the sort of affect and the the sort of you know reaction to this goes that i can't you know deny that yeah and it seems like in in the ending of beasts of no nation like you're talking about by by saying that you know i had a mother who loved me it's it's also inviting you to question what is going on in the world that can take people who start in the same position relatively speaking um what's going on in the world to create these conditions where things can go so vastly wrong yeah it's like a like a reaffirmation and also in a lot of ways like a condemnation of like you're saying the things that could turn you into a monster into a beast yeah like that that's a manufactured beast not a naturally occurring phenomenon yeah anyway uh Good stuff. Yeah. Feel good about it. That's that's strong. I look forward to seeing how they change the next the next fifty. Yeah. It's like uh, old people on their fiftieth anniversary is like, here's to the next fifty. <laughs> Knowing they'll be dead in at least, you know, <laughs> soon twenty four. <laughs> um Yeah, so that that worked out pretty well. Um we had we forgot to talk about what we're doing next week, but we already kind of had a plan in place, if you remember. Um, we were going to talk about what I, uh, termed late nineties reality smashers. Um, and I, I don't remember all of them, but you had a list of, I think three. Yeah. Late nineties reality smashers. The Truman show, Peter Weir, 1998 
Pleasantville. I can't remember who directed that. And maybe this is going to sound weird at first mention, but at second thought, it'll make sense. The Matrix by the Wachowskis. Uh, So all of these movies sort of posit a false reality uh, and, and and a real reality that is the goal of, you know, getting to that real reality is the goal. Um, I think they're going to have some interesting, uh, overlap. Pleasantville is directed by Gary Ross. Gary Ross. He also did Seabiscuit. He did what? Seabiscuit in the first Hunger Games movie and Ocean's 8 and Free State of Jones, that weird Matthew McConaughey Civil War movie. <laughs> big. Weird. Oh, no, okay. he wrote Big. Uh, Sorry. He wrote Big and Dave. <laughs> this is weird. I, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm forgetting. There's like another late 90s thing. But anyway, like three Ed is TV. plenty. Say it again. Ed TV. Ed TV. Well, that, let's compare that to the Truman Show, which is, uh, I think, a, a real disservice to the Truman Show. But... Um, it's been a while since I saw Ed TV. If I have time, maybe I'll watch Ed TV. <laughs> well, okay, so that those will be the three that we'll focus on then. Truman Show, Pleasantville, and The Matrix. That trio. Yep, let's do it. All right, we're going to do it. We're going to do it like Buddhists. Buddhists.